Well, in today's message, we're going to unpack the second half of a story we began studying last week. I want you to recall with me that King David had purposed to restore the long-neglected Ark of the Covenant to the heart of spiritual life in Israel. And he planned to do that by bringing it out of mothballs in the house of Abinadab and into the capital of his nation, the new capital, Jerusalem. Unfortunately, as we saw last week, David's first attempt to move the ark to Jerusalem was an epic fail, and for good reasons. We considered three of those last week. His failure to consult God first about his plans, his carelessness in ignoring the commands of God's word concerning the care and transport of the ark, and the casual disregard for the holiness of God and the gravity of sin on the part of the driver of the cart, a man named Uzzah. The whole effort, you'll recall, ended in failure following poor Uzzah's death. The ark was again put in storage, this time in the house of a man named Obed-Edom, and a crestfallen David sulked back to Jerusalem, afraid and angry. And as we pick up the story again today, we'll see, my, what a difference three months can make. For on this do-over try, just three months after the first failed attempt, King David and all Israel with him successfully brought the ark into the city of David with rejoicing. And Jerusalem has never been the same since. For on the day we'll read about in our text today, Jerusalem became the eternal spiritual capital of Israel. And in the hearts and minds of the Jewish people, it has been thought of that way ever since. Now this is true even though for many of the 3,000 years that have passed since that day, Jerusalem's been under the political control of others. Nevertheless, the Jewish people hold fast to the promise of God to King David. In Jerusalem, God said, I will put my name forever. 2 Kings 21.7. So no wonder then that a thousand years later, the scriptures record for us that Jesus set his face toward Jerusalem. Luke 9. And, and no wonder he chose this city as the place to sacrifice himself for the sins of lost humanity. Nor should it surprise us that the, the whole biblical story of redemption comes to completion in Jerusalem. A new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God. Revelation 21. So the passage we're reading today continues to have historical implications 3,000 years later. So let's now return to 2 Samuel chapter 6 and pick up our story with part 2, beginning in verse 11, reading selected portions through verse 21. Starting in verse 11. And the ark of the Lord remained in the house of Obed-Edom the Gittite three months. And the Lord blessed Obed-Edom and all his household. And it was told to King David, The Lord has blessed the house of Obed-Edom and all that belongs to him because of the ark of God. So David went up and brought the ark of God from the house of Obed-Edom to the city of David with rejoicing. 
And David danced before the Lord with all his might. David was wearing a linen ephod. As the ark of the Lord came into the city of David, Michael, the daughter of Saul, looked out the window and saw King David leaping and dancing before the Lord. And she despised him in her heart. And David returned to bless his household. But Michael, the daughter of Saul, came out to meet David and said, How the king of Israel honored himself today, uncovering himself today before the eyes of his female servants as one of the vulgar fellows shamelessly uncovers himself. And David said to Michael, It was before the Lord who chose me above your father and above all of his house to appoint me as prince over, the, over Israel, the people of the Lord. And I will celebrate before the Lord. The title of today's message is Dancing for an Audience of One. Would you join your hearts with mine as we look to the Lord in prayer? <clears throat> Heavenly Father, today... Our prayer is that we would not leave this place the same people that we were when we came here. That you would use the worship and your word to change us and to transform us. That's a work only you can do. My words won't do that. But Lord, if you'll empower my words and speak to all of our hearts, you can work that change in us. We ask you to do so. And we ask it in Jesus' name. And all God's people say it. Amen. And as we study God's word today, may the Lord be with you. Well, back in 2016, <clears throat> with my daughter's wedding just a few months away, it was time for me to make good on a long-standing promise. You see, years earlier, my wife had asked me to take dance lessons. But as a terrible dancer, I had put her off with the assurance, when one of our kids gets married, honey, then I'll go with you to dance lessons. So with a wedding on the horizon, we started lessons at a local studio. And I discovered that I really enjoyed it, even if I wasn't very good at it. But as the weeks went by, we were starting to learn a few steps, and, and our instructor encouraged us to attend the studio's annual winter event they called the Snowflake Ball. Sounded like fun. And then we discovered that part of the entertainment at the Snowflake Ball was the chance for each student or couple to individually showcase a dance they had been learning. And all of this was to happen in front of all the gathered instruction, uh, instructors and other students, many of whom had been studying dance for years. So imagine dancing with the stars, only in our case with no stars, no talent, and little practice. And my poor wife, she had to follow my lead, that, not that of some professional dancer, in a word, you could say, we were both petrified. So on the night of the snowflake ball, we were scheduled near the beginning of the program with all the other rookies. And it was, when it was our turn, Lynn and I walked out to the center of the stage 
to the center of the dance floor, took a deep breath, and waited for the music to start. It was nerve-wracking, knowing that every eye in the room was on us. Our only hope was to not make fools of ourselves. So Lynn and I had decided to do a dance called The Hustle. Now, if you were around back in the day, you'd probably do the hustle. You know, I told you I wasn't very good at this. In, in recent weeks, we had learned maybe half a dozen turns and moves for the hustle, and I tried my best to lead her through every one of them. But that didn't take very long. And a look of desperation must have shown on my face because mercifully one of the instructors shut off the music quickly. And I can't tell you how thankful I was. (laughs) Now, fast forward three weeks later to my daughter Bryn's wedding. Again, I was nervous about a dance, this time the daddy-daughter dance, but for entirely different reasons. You see, Bryn and I had tried to practice once or twice prior to her wedding day, but without much success. Between us, we didn't have any rhythm, and we had even fewer moves, and and it didn't help that I'd get all weepy just thinking about giving my daughter away. Well, following, following the wedding ceremony, a couple hundred guests gathered at the reception hall that for her February wedding looked a, was decorated a lot like the snowflake ball. And when it was time for the daddy-daughter dance, once again, it was just the two of us, this time Bryn and me, in the center of the dance floor. When the music started, all eyes were on us. But to be honest, this time, none of that mattered. We kind of shuffled through our dance, and that was okay. I didn't want the music to stop. And I didn't really care if everyone else thought we looked foolish. See, looking back, the difference between those two occasions was really clear. At the wedding, I was dancing for an audience of one. The only opinion that mattered to me in those special moments was Bryn's. And I remember that day to this day as one of life's special moments. Well, King David had such a moment as he led the procession alongside the Ark of the Covenant into Jerusalem. But before we judge his dancing at the gates of the city, we have to step back for a moment and consider how he got there. For last week, as we left the king, you could say he was in a bit of a funk. His initial attempt to bring the ark into Jerusalem had ended in tragedy well short of the capital. The crowds had all gone home deflated, and the ark had been relegated to storage in the house of a local man named Obadidim. And for his part, David had gone home angry and afraid to bring that unpredictable ark into the city. But sometime shortly thereafter, word reached David... God is blessing the household of Obadidim and everything he touches because of the ark. Now, it's been suggested that envy might have sparked a change in the king's heart toward the ark of the covenant. I mean, 
if Obed-Edom's house could be blessed by the ark's presence, why couldn't David and all Jerusalem enjoy that blessing instead? But I don't really think that's what Scripture teaches at all. You see, rather, I, I think it's clear that the report of Obed-Edom's blessing was like holding up a spiritual mirror for David to see the condition of his own heart. For in the king's own care, the ark had brought trouble. But in the Levite Obed-Edom's care, it brought blessing. It was the same ark. So what's the moral of that story? In another time and place, David had written, Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts. And see if there be any grievous way in me, and lead me in the way everlasting. Psalm 139. You see, therein lies one part of David's secret to being a man after God's own heart. Not that he was without sin by any means but that he remained ever humble and teachable concerning the things of God. And so, while in this particular instance, the details of that specific moment, when David understood and confessed his failure to do God's work in God's way, uh, the details of that moment aren't recorded for us in the biblical record, but this much is documented. In the space of three short months, David moved from a place of debilitating fear. How can the ark of the Lord come to me? He moved from that place to a scene of unbridled joy as he accompanied the ark into Jerusalem. And this transformation should remind us that there's great freedom in keeping short accounts with God. For the sin that in the present may delay his blessing need not necessarily derail his blessing if we keep short accounts. David's spiritual habit of keeping short accounts didn't allow his funk born of fear and anger toward God to last for too long. In short order, his passion to bring that earthly representation of God's throne back into the place in the center of Israel's spiritual life had been rekindled. Now let me just pause here for a moment and ask all of you, is there anyone here that has an open account with God? An account that's been open for far too long. Maybe it started as a result of some hurt or wound or loss or pain. Maybe it started because in some way you just felt God had been unfair to you. But that account's remained open all this time. Can I encourage you today to follow the example of David and take that matter back to God? Close that account and move on with what God's, with God's plans for you. Know this, God didn't change. And the circumstances didn't change. But in taking that matter back to God, David changed. And that account was closed. Can I encourage you to do the same?
Another key factor in David's renewed spirit was a willingness to humbly bow his knee under the authority of God's word. That he had searched the scriptures after his failed first attempt to move the ark is clear. Listen to David's own explanation of that first unsuccessful episode as it's found in the parallel account of our story in 1 Chronicles chapter 15. Then David said that no one but the Levites may carry the ark of God, for the Lord had chosen them to carry the ark of the Lord and minister to him forever. Because you Levites didn't carry it the first time, the Lord our God broke out against us because we did not seek him according to the rule. Wow. Someone had gone back to search the scriptures. And it found out that God wasn't the problem. And the ark wasn't the problem. The problem was they hadn't followed God's word. But David wasn't merely a a hearer of God's word, a reader. He was also a doer, for the account continues. So the priests and Levites consecrated themselves. They set themselves apart for God's work to bring up the ark of the Lord of God, of the God of Israel. And the Levites carried the ark of God on their shoulders with the poles as Moses had commanded according to the word of the Lord. Now you've got to love that. See, gone was the new cart like the Philistines to carry the ark. On the do-over, David was determined to do God's work, not in the way he thought best, not in the way others thought best according to the best practices of the day, but in the way prescribed by God's word. Now, sometimes you watch Christians make a mess of things and And you would think this is rocket science, but it's not. I like how Pastor Brian Loritz makes this point. He said, the word of God must be the North Star we use to align all of our journeys. Now, I know the North Star metaphor may be lost on some in this GPS age. I mean, some of us couldn't align our journey to Grandma's house without Google Maps. But for hundreds of years before GPS, sailors would navigate their course across vast oceans using only the principles of geometry. However, the key to the whole process was getting a clear view of the North Star. In the same way, we have to have a clear view of God's Word. We have to know His Word to guide us through life's journey. David discovered this the hard way on his first journey with the ark. But he didn't make the same mistake twice. Again, can I pause simply to encourage you to follow his example. I have no doubt that there are people in this room who know the things that you're doing, the things that you fill your mind with, run contrary to God's word. 
I have no doubt that there are people in this room who, who are in the process of making decisions that they know are not in alignment with God's Word. Can I encourage you to let David be your example and, and align your life's journey according to that North Star of His Word? Here at ACAC... We've again recently started on a 91-week journey through God's Word using a helpful study tool called Know the Word. And if you don't have a regular practice of reading God's Word, or you've never read the whole Bible, or maybe you've read it, but there are whole parts that you don't understand can I encourage you to join our daily study of the Bible called 91 Weeks of Transformation. You can ask at either of our desks or ask any of our pastoral staff to help you get started. So David didn't stay angry and afraid of God for long. He kept short accounts. And he started his second effort to bring the Ark of the Covenant to Jerusalem with a clear view of all that God's Word said about the matter. And that view directed his steps. And as the story continued, all Israel was worshiping the Lord as the ark approached Jerusalem. Now, try to picture this with me. King David, dressed not in his royal robes, but in the simple linen covering of a priest or Levite, dancing with all of his might alongside the ark. And bear in mind, the word for dance used in our text speaks of a feverish, whirling dance, not merely some sort of respectable shake of the shoulders. (laughs) David was excited. He was overjoyed to see the reign of God about to be officially recognized in the heart of his kingdom. Listen to just a few of the words of the song of worship that he wrote for just this occasion. It comes from 1 Chronicles 16, where David said, Let the heavens be glad and let the earth rejoice. And let them say among the nations, The Lord reigns. Let the sea roar and all that fills it. Let the field exult and everything in it. Then shall the trees of the forest sing for joy before the Lord, for he comes to judge the earth. Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, and his steadfast love endures forever. But it shouldn't surprise us that not everyone was overjoyed to see David's excitement on this momentous occasion. Now, Because we don't have a king here in the United States, we're not as familiar with the multitude of rules of etiquette that typically govern royal life. But but the expectations are many. I looked up just some of the rules of etiquette for the British royal family to, to give us a taste of this dynamic. Well, you probably already know that there's a proper way for royals to dress and to sit, and to wave. Maybe you're aware that 
No autographs or selfies of royalty are allowed. And yes, there is a right way to hold a teacup, and it's not with your pinky extended. When at the dinner table, a member of royalty should always have the tines of their fork pointed down so that the food is actually balanced on the back of the fork for eating purposes. Who knew? And when the queen stops eating, watch your manners. Everyone else has to stop as well. Now, I'm not sure they were this particular in ancient Israel, but it does help put into perspective the reaction of David's wife, Michael, as she watched her husband enter Jerusalem. Remember, Michael had grown up a princess, the daughter of King Saul before marrying David. And apparently she was not a fan of his dancing. For earlier, we read in our text, Michael looked out the window and saw King David leaping and dancing before the Lord, and she despised him in her heart. How the king of Israel honored himself today, she mocked. Uncovering himself as one of the vulgar fellows shamelessly uncovers himself. But David's reply made it clear he wasn't dancing for the approval of others, and he wasn't dancing for his wife's approval either. It was before the Lord, he said, who chose me above your father, and I will make merry before the Lord. You see, David wasn't fazed by Michael's dim view of his leaping and dancing. And his exuberance wasn't a show for the crowd. On this, one of the greatest days of his life, David was dancing for an audience of one. He was dancing before the Lord. So the $64,000 question today is this. Who are you dancing for today? Speaking of himself, Jesus said, The Son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the Father doing. The Apostle Paul would later say, We make it our aim to please him. What about you and me? Is, our, is his opinion our primary concern? Are we dancing for an audience of one? When you came into this place to worship today, were you free to roar like the seas and sing for joy like the trees? Our God reigns. As David wrote in his song, or is it our habit to turn down the volume on our voices to a respectable level and to keep our hands politely folded or locked to our sides, lest they be lifted heavenward and people think we're getting carried away. Are we dancing for an audience of one? Now, there's a big difference between expressions of worship to be seen by others, expressions that serve to distract others, and worshiping for an audience of one. 
I remember a service here in this sanctuary years ago where a guy that I've never seen, never seen before or since walked in during a worship song and started dancing down this middle row, right down here. And as he danced down the row, he was looking from side to side to see that everybody's eyes were on him. And he got right down here into this front part. And as he's dancing, he danced right into a forward roll. And then he got up and he just kept on dancing. But in the midst of his gymnastics, some Starbucks candies had fallen out of his pocket. And they were back here. And, and, and unfazed, he just kind of breakdanced his way back to the candies, picked them up, and then turned and danced right back out the door, never to be seen again. Our friend was dancing to be seen by hundreds. And there's absolutely no spiritual value in that at all. The challenge from David's life and from God's word today is to worship with all of our might for an audience of one. But that same principle applies to every aspect of life, doesn't it? Do we go about our work each day for an audience of one? The Bible says we're to work heartily as unto the Lord, not men. Colossians chapter 3. Is that how we do our work for an audience of one? Does the way we treat our spouse at home reflect our awareness of an audience of one? Is the way we act when no one else is looking mindful of the truth that somebody actually is? Do we use social media in ways that please an audience of one? Or are we too busy trying to convince our cyber friends to think like us, to vote like us, and to think we're a paragon of virtue? The question today is, are we dancing for an audience of one. On the occasion of bringing the Ark of the Covenant into Jerusalem, this historic event, this very public event, this significant spiritual event, David danced with all his might before the Lord. He danced for an audience of one. Now, last week, church, we learned from David's mistakes. But this week, we're learning by his example. Let's purpose to keep short accounts with God. Let's purpose to let his word be the North Star to guide our life's journey. And brothers and sisters... Let's purpose not to dance to the expectations of all the people around us, but this week to begin consciously dancing for our heavenly audience of one. Would you bow your heads with me as we pray? Heavenly Father, as we prepare to go from this place, we pray that as 
we mentioned before that you would use your word to change us. Help us to keep short accounts. Lord, to not let those hurts and pains create distance with you that we don't resolve. Lord, help us to look to your word to guide our journey and our behavior and our thoughts and our actions. And God, help us as we leave this place to go through life consciously dancing for an audience of one. We ask in the precious name of Jesus. Amen.